Welcome to the Nebraska BHA Chapter Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Kimenaw. I'm a Board of Directors member and the social media chair for the chapter, so if you're out there on social media, there's a good chance that you've seen my name. Today I'm joined by Luke with Nebraska Game and Parks, and our conversation is all about Nebraska deer and elk. This week we're in the middle of the firearm season for deer here in Nebraska, so the conversation was quite timely and very informative. Before we transition into the conversation with Luke, I want to remind you that if you are not a member or you need to renew your membership with Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, to head over to the website and click on the link for membership. Your membership will help keep public lands and waters accessible as well as help keep you informed on all things affecting your outdoor adventures. All right, let's transition into the conversation with Luke, and thank you for tuning in. I'm here with Luke from Game and Parks, and we're going to talk about big game. So, Luke, if you uh, want to introduce yourself, just give us a little background, kind of where you grew up, what you do for Game and Parks, and we'll get started. Yeah, I'm Luke Maduna. I'm the big game program manager for the Game and Parks Commission. Grew up here in Nebraska, actually from Wilcox, Nebraska, down south of Kearney. Lived there the first 17, 18 years of my life, I guess, until I went to college. Actually grew up on a WMA, the Sack Wilcox WMA. My dad's a biologist with the agency. Back then, they raised pheasants and geese, the giant Canada's the nice. repropagation <laughs> project that was wildly successful. Now we've got Canada <laughs> geese on golf courses and in Lincoln and all that stuff. So in all honesty, you know, kind of the best childhood a kid could ever ask for, you know, so spent most of it outdoors. I'd say my interest in big game, you know, a lot of that stems from my dad. I mean, he's really at heart, he's an upland bird hunter and waterfowl hunter, but he really got into Deer hunting and another big game in really across a lot of the West. I mean, he's actually killed two bighorn sheep in Wyoming. And, oh, man. Yeah, I mean, he's one of the very few that's drawn two of those permits. That, <laughs> Lucky guy right yeah, there. <laughs> everybody, everybody hates him for drawing one, and he's drawn and killed two, oh, two nice rams out there. So he applies in multiple states across the West. And so a lot of my interest in big game has kind of come by osmosis, just growing up in that environment. As far as school and stuff, I did my undergrad at Doan. Doan College, which is now Doan University, went there mostly to run track and cross country uh, was what I was doing there, but then ended up graduating from there and then going on and getting a master's degree, um, strangely enough, studying lease turns on the Red River in southwest Arkansas. Oh. <laughs> so my, you know, my master's degree, it, still, you know, the concepts are all the same. You understand bias and research and all that stuff, but I studied little birds and nests on sandbars for, for my master's. Part of the reason I went to do that is I want to do something different. A lot of my early jobs had been up in northwest Nebraska. I spent several years working out of the Ponderosa WMA and working out of Alliance. kind of wanted to do something different. So that was about as different as, as I could possibly do and still stay in the wildlife realm. And I, I enjoyed it. But deep down, I came back to Nebraska and ended up working on big game again with just all their, you know, working on the management uh, side out there. When I was coming through, permanent jobs were real hard to come by. They're still hard, but they're easier now than they, they used to be. But I uh, ended up going up to South Dakota and working out of the Rapid City office for my first permanent job, working for their agency for six years um, on their, uh, kind of in their big game program. Um, my responsibility was doing, and it, well, it was their wildlife division, but um, my responsibility was doing all the wildlife surveys for the, like, the western third of the state. So I coordinated you know, all the aerial elk and antelope surveys and grouse surveys and pheasant brood surveys and stuff like that for like the western, the region one, which is the western third the of the western. state. So, nice. and got to work with lions. I, I mean, I've helped collar like a hundred mountain lions and oh, stuff like man. that up there. So it was, <laughs> That'd be thrilling. Oh, it was, that was an incredible job. I always joke that it was amazing. I found somebody to pay me to wake up and be Luke Maduna, you know, because that's, <laughs> I mean, it was like, you know, this is the type of stuff I'd want to do, but. Uh, ended up moving back to Nebraska here 2013, so eight years ago. I've got a boy that's nine, and my wife's originally from Lincoln, and so it was kind of one of those things, just come back home, came back, lived in North Platte for, what would that be, six years, 2013 to 2019, basically, and then when I got into this position in late 18, early 2019, I moved to Lincoln. Nice. So, Sounds like you got some interesting background yeah man i i I would love to encounter like a a mountain lion i I, i've always run into stuff i'm like well that that seems like maybe that's not right that's not supposed to be there kind of a thing yeah and (laughs) you know it was kind of funny because we i worked on a lot of those those lion projects up there where we 
you know, we were calling her in kittens and, you know, calling her in all sorts of adults. And um, one of the projects, we had a GPS caller where we were going in on clusters to see what they're eating. And, and everybody's, you know, asking, aren't you, aren't you worried about, you know, lions sneaking up on you? It's like, I'm more scared of breaking my leg and never making it back to the truck than <laughs> anything, you know. And, and it's probably... I've, I've like lost all fear in working with them for so long. I completely lost all fear of them. Like the, so one of the, it's like the second or third one we collared. Um, it came down out of the tree, and the, the first couple were caught in like foothold traps. And you, you dart them, and you just wait for them to fall asleep. And then the first one we chased with the dogs, we dart it, and it's coming down out of the tree, and the houndsman goes run up there and grab it by the tail. And I'm like, you're playing a joke on a new guy. And sure enough, they all run up there and they grab it. And as they're coming out of drug, going under with drugs, you just grab them so they don't run off 50 yards. They just kind of slowly, you hang on to them and then just fall over. And the first time I saw it, I'm like, you guys are lunatics. And like a month later, I'm in there doing it. You know, doing the same yeah, thing? And it's just, oh, man. After a while, you, you handle them. You know, how, you, you know how to read them when they're going under with drugs. and Or if they're awake with drugs, you know to keep, you know, what distance you need to. But... You have some of them that, you know, you dart when they're up in the tree and they want to fall asleep in oh. the tree. And so then you got to climb up there and push them out. Push and they're kind of half awake and <laughs> swatting at you and stuff mm. like that. You know, so it's... <laughs> yeah, that sounds like an experience. You're, you're probably right on that. Like, you, you play a trick on the new guy yeah, kind of a thing. Exactly like, oh, I turn around like, no, like, I'm not that dumb. And they all run past me and go and grab it. And I'm like, holy cow, he wasn't even joking. You know? Oh, man. That's... so. That would be a lot of fun, but uh, it's, yeah. well, maybe it's, roller it's, coasters are safer. Yeah, <laughs> well, but it's, it's one of those things, you know, you, you see it done and you do it enough times, you're like, oh, that ain't that bad, you yeah. know, and so right. that was the, yeah, it was just an experience uh, with all that work oh, out there and got to, got to see a lot and experience a lot that, that really prepared me for, you know, moving back down here and, and ultimately stepping into, into the position I'm not a great... Uh, Grant, I don't have to deal with, with lions. Sam Wilson is our carnivore biologist, and so he gets to deal with all that. But with all the deer and elk and um, stuff I got, got involved with up there, it was awesome. Uh, a lot of great building blocks that prepared me for yeah for being here. It sounds like a really great experience. And, you know, it's, it's one of those where folks in Nebraska and lions and things like that, they're always talking about, well, you know, there's one in Omaha or wherever. Yeah. I'm sure there are, but getting that deer and elk experience, and that's part of the reason we're here today talking is this week is actually the firearm season for deer, right? Yep. So yep, right now, um, yeah. we're, we're in the middle of it right now, and the late elk season antler list is going on as well. So that kind of moves into our next next part of the, the conversation, I guess, and, and that is everybody knows that at one point in history, conservation took over to bring animals back because they were extirpated completely yep. from the land, right? So you talked about your dad and, and the geese and things like that and, and how he was part of that. So I guess if you don't mind, just kind of get into kind of some of the history of Nebraska and, and the big game. And, and I guess we can start off with deer. Yeah. Um, yeah. Elk are a little newer. Yeah, with the settling, you know, of the Great Plains, you know, initially we thought the game was endless and we used them as a food supply. And, and a lot of it was just a matter of survival. You know, I mean, people needed food and, you know, the market hunting played a role in it and you know, towards the end of the 1800s, you know, we started realizing, hey, everything's getting pretty sparse. And some states were starting to pass laws trying to protect wildlife. Um, I think Nebraska, it was 1907, we passed a, the legislature passed a law prohibiting the the take of, of all big game. It's got some funny antiquated wording in it, but, <laughs> you, you know, deer and elk and sheep and, and antelope. And I, I'm not so sure turkeys weren't even included in that. With deer... Deer were never completely extirpated from the state. They survived in some real isolated pockets. We did reintroduce, to, to my understanding, some whitetails in the eastern part of the state. We brought them in. It might have been Missouri or something like that, you know, in the 20s and 30s or something like that. We, we did do that a couple times. Our first deer season um, was up at Halsey in 1945, and that was... It, ironically, it was because they were causing damage on the tree plantings that they were doing in the Halsey Forest. So we we, we had our first season, to, and, and looking through the pictures, some of the pictures are actually damage on cedar trees. So oh, I, wow. ironically, now it's, you know, now we're trying to kill all the cedar trees. So we're we trying can. to get rid of those. Yeah, and so, but our first seasons were to protect cedar trees. So, I mean, we are the, the home of Arbor Day, but it's, it's kind of funny. And even back then, they thought, oh, we just need to shoot a few. 
it's likely with the habitat we have across the state, we'll never see deer statewide and all this, you know, all this kind of stuff that you read it now and you kind of chuckle a little bit. But, you know, it went from, you know, them shooting like 300 deer the first season to like 6,000 in like 10 years. Wow. You know, so their seasons really escalated. And by the late 50s, we had seasons almost statewide. I think it was like 1957. We had kind of the the unit structure where they had it divided up and I think it was 17 units at that point so pretty similar to what we have now yeah and I think a lot of the, I didn't look too I didn't look too closely at those old boundaries but I assume a lot of them are pretty similar pretty similar to what, what, we, to what we have now you know and so that's I, those units that we've got are really quite long-standing yeah but you said 57 so yeah do the math on that that's that's yeah. a few years yeah, right yeah, we're looking at 60 something years, yeah so. that's that's pretty amazing to go from 47 to the first hunt modern hunt right to yeah. 10 years later having basically similar to what yeah. we do today right yeah yeah getting there yeah and they had that season in 45 and then i think it was 49 was the next year like they took like a few years off and then realized oh, we we better shoot some more and then that was yeah we better do this every year and so populations were just growing yeah growing real and well just, and just coming back and you know it was it's it's one of those things where it, you know you have a few a few deer you know, for a while, and then all of a sudden, you know, they kind of fly under the radar. All of a sudden, it's like, oh man, we got a lot. <laughs> so I think that's kind of what they, what they experienced back then. So yeah, but and it's a it's a you know, land, that landscape's continually changing. Most of their, most of the deer early on was our our harvest was, um, almost entirely mule deer those first few years. Wow. Um, and then slowly the whitetails just kept building steam and building steam. And I think it was in the seventies sometime when that whitetail harvest actually eclipsed the mule deer oh, wow. harvest. That's, that's so, quite a few years of mule deer, considering now it's, yeah. it's mostly whitetail, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. right now we're like 50,000 whitetails and like 10,000 mule deer. So we kill five times as many whitetails. Hey, yeah, wow, know, and that's so incredible. It's, yeah, and so and the mule deer harvest has really kind of stayed fairly steady. Uh, you know, these last 15 years, it's, it's turned it up where we've eclipsed 10,000. Um, but you know, historically, it was always in that you know five, six, eight thousand range. Hmm. You know, even early on, and so it's just it's just it's real steady, really pretty steady um, across that. But the the whitetails, of course, the mid two thousands, everything absolutely skyrocketed when we had deer everywhere. And oh yeah, I, so I um, and then then EHD <laughs> helped us out and <laughs> leveled that. Yeah, unfortunately, so. some of those things popped in, and we'll talk yeah. a little bit about that too. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, it's amazing to know that we went from pockets of whitetail to you almost can't drive around and, yeah. and not see not them seen, you know yeah. yeah well and i can you know growing up on sack there in the 80s it was even like if somebody saw a deer driving through the area you know because that was a you know it was a pheasant and goose it's a big wetland complex mm-hmm. and people would stop by because we we lived on the, the wildlife area there and people would stop in and say hey we saw a deer you know, and then that you know that's only that's less than 40 years ago right yeah that's that's not that long ago to yeah. think that people were amazed to see deer and yeah, yeah. at that point and so and it, that whole dynamic changed in a hurry you know the, the 80s to also the 90s it's like oh there's deer everywhere so that's pretty incredible growth so I, I mean as far as the management piece of it goes obviously that we've had the growth in the deer population and, and we've got quite a few that we harvest every year in the state how does Nebraska kind of view that in terms of the hunter's experience or you know quality because some states they I'll just take Nevada for example they go for a quality animal hunt yeah. type of a scenario so they got very limited now granted that's a totally different landscape than yeah. Nebraska we kind of got the best of the east and the west kind of yep. going on here so what's Nebraska doing and, and how are they kind of focusing that management now you know overall you know our primary desire is to provide opportunity for people to hunt but at the same time, you know, we, we have to balance all those other things. We, we do consider trophy, I don't want to say trophy quality, we consider the age structure of our buck harvest. That's something we look at, you know, that during the, this week, you know, at the, the check stations, a lot of them that we're operating, we're, we're cutting cheeks and getting ages on them. And so we consider that age structure for both whitetails and mule deer. But then, you know, on that flip side, we also got to consider, you know, depredation issues and, and what the private landowners face, too. And we've got to be responsible and, and, and help serve them so that they've got the number of deer on them that they desire to have. Yeah. You know, and so it's, 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 it's a balance of, of kind of all of those things. We, we, because, because of its, you know, because we're a private land state, we can't, we'll, we'll never be able to go just manage for trophies. 
you know, because sure. with trophies you have to have a lot of big deer, you have to have a lot of little deer, and to have <laughs> a lot of little deer, you got to have a lot of deer. Period. So um, that just gets that complicates things, you know. And in some of those states, you know, some of the the more more trophy oriented states, you know, Iowa and even Kansas, you know, a lot of those areas that are highly managed have significant deer issues, you know, and have have high numbers, and there's conflict that that comes with that. And and some of it's just cultural, where some of those places just tolerate more deer. Yeah. Um, and, and we're just not there yet, you know, as far as just the tolerance for deer and, and you know, there's a whole host of things that play into that property taxes and the need sure. to produce, you know, the, the need for that land to produce money because of, you know, taxes to start with. I mean, you can't blame landowners for no having that priority. So I mean, and we're a big agricultural state, yeah. right? Yeah, so definitely. That, that's number one here. So. Yeah. You talk about that depredation and, and that and. And you talked about earlier a little bit with like the you know the the increase in the early 2000s we've got now permits that are or the antlerless permits yeah. you know season's choice so that's I'm assuming probably a lot of helping with that depredation yep. and in that management piece right yep, so. yep. those are our season choice and, and really yeah, the, the antlerless permits because we're kind of got a few of our buck permits that are technically season's choice um, as well but our antlerless permits yeah that's our primary tool for for managing deer populations, and, and we adjust those, you know, annually. We, we have meetings where we, we discuss moving those up and down. You know, if we need to bring deer numbers up a little bit in some areas, we drop them down or take bonus tags off or do whatever, or if we need to really start stacking up deer, we'll, you know, increase permit numbers or put triple tags and, you know, put yeah. that second bonus on there and do different things like that. And so, yeah, it's, it's definitely a balancing act to try to have that, and, and you know, the, the right number of deer is varies by you know property sure. <laughs> so it's when you're looking across a broad area it's it, it's yeah you really gotta look at stuff from that you know 50,000 feet you know yeah yeah I'm sure I mean there's obviously all the, all the management of like what the carrying capacity of the land is but at the same time like you said with depredation and everything else what one person views as acceptable and somebody else I'm mm-hmm. sure it, it's a challenge yep. to deal with yep it is so Along those lines, as far as challenges or, or things like that in seasons, so a couple of questions always come up. One is is the season why why does the firearm season overlap with the the rut? And then the other is talking about the youth seasons and, and opportunities there. So yeah, I guess if we want to talk about a couple of those things, uh, yeah, the the timing of the season always pops up. You know, especially when we live next to Kansas and Iowa and everybody. That's the one thing is everybody just assumes that. Well, they have big deer because their season is in December. Well, so does Pennsylvania. <laughs> you know, and Pennsylvania isn't known for a, being a trophy state at all. Right. And you look at that, Ohio has a December season. Um, but, you know, other states like Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, they all have November seasons. Like us, Kentucky, they have a November firearm season. And so the, the season dates, it's not a driver for, for trophy quality. A lot of that has to do with habitat. And simply just the number of bucks that are being shot. And again, to have trophy bucks, you got to start with, you know, you just got to have better survival. And so if you want more trophy bucks, you got to shoot fewer. Um, and so some of that's a, a balance. And, and I would say that we're we're really not, you know, most people's um, idea of what Kansas and Iowa and all the other states look like is what they see on TV or YouTube. Not to say that there aren't, there, there's some definitely some really good places to hunt in those those states where you can yeah. definitely see trophy deer you can see a lot of good deer here too but we're really when it comes down to you know like the Boone and Crockett entries on a per deer harvested rate because for one like Iowa kills twice as many deer in, in their seasons than we do they kill wow. like 110,000 deer we kill 55 to 60,000 wow that's a considerable you know, and, difference and, and they're a lot smaller state <laughs> yeah you know and so you start, and Wisconsin kills, like, 300,000 deer. You know, so everybody talks about how many Boone and Crockett entries Wisconsin has, but they kill a ton of deer yeah. to start with. And so when you start comparing on a per-deer harvested rate, I actually, this was a rabbit hole I went down about two years ago. And <laughs> I think I disappeared in my office for about three weeks <laughs> pulling all sorts of stuff. But I, I managed to download the, the Boone and Crockett one of the bits of data I looked at was the Boone and Crockett entries from 07 to 2017 and then the average number of deer harvest I actually got all the harvested deer from 07 to or the, the white-tailed bucks harvested from 07 to 2017 and then if you compare a average Boone and Crockett's per year from that to the average bucks harvested per year Iowa 
uh, Indiana and, and Kansas all had about, it was, it was, they were remarkably close, those, those three states. And I think I said Indiana was another state that had a mm-hmm. November season. But like 1,200 or 1,250 whitetail bucks harvested for every Boone and Crockett that was entered over a thousand yeah per Boone and Crockett yeah lot. so wow. it's about 1200 you know somewhere in that range I can't remember who was next but it was I think Kentucky was somewhere in there next Illinois and oh I can't think but Wisconsin Wisconsin is was at like 2100 and we were at 2500 oh wow you know, and then it starts really dropping off. Like South Dakota is a couple behind us at like four thousand eight hundred. North Dakota is six thousand. <laughs> you know, oh Missouri and Minnesota are just behind us in the three thousands. But you know, states like Arkansas, it's like ten thousand. Texas is one in every twelve thousand deer that's harvested. Wow, or bucks that are harvested. And then you get a state like South Carolina, where it's like one in every six hundred thousand. They've had like two Boone and Crockett entries. Oh no, like ever in South Carolina. <laughs> But, you know, in, you know, Michigan's like 26,000, you know, bucks harvested per Boone and Crockett. And even Wisconsin, you know, well, it, uh, yeah, Wisconsin was right ahead of us um, there at, at 2,100, you know, for, which they've, they've got far and away the most Boone and Crockett entries. Wow. You know, it's it's so. amazing to, to know that, you know, that just the, the average chance of it, like, that it's so significantly small, you yeah. know, it's, it's crazy to think. And granted, there's always, you know, people that shoot boom rocks that don't enter. It's probably pretty similar across states. You know, I've, yeah. I, I know, you know, from working check stations that there's, there's, I, I've seen several that should be in the books that I, I know absolutely aren't. The biggest deer I've ever seen, it's actually two guys from Minnesota that uh, own some land um, out by North Platte that they came into the check station and happened to hit it as a busy time. And they were, they're acting kind of funny to start with. That, they're just really quiet. Most people are chattering and <laughs> talking, and they were just dead quiet. And we came out and hop into the truck, not thinking out. I'm like, yeah, that's a big deer. And, and there's a duffel bag in the corner, like by the head of another. And I'm like, as I'm getting there, and I look, and I'm like, what is that? And they had the, the antlers of the one buck. Like the, the, the buck that was laying there was like a 160-inch deer. Wow. I'm like, that's a huge deer. Yeah. And I'm like, but what what is that? And they look at me and they're like, they're like, stay quiet, you know, shushing me, like don't say anything. And I'm like, can I see it? And they lift it up, and it was every bit of a 200 inch typical that I'm sure wow. never. They didn't. They did not want anybody to. They didn't to, want. They didn't want their property no, to be a little dot on no, the map. No, they didn't want people to know where they, the what they what they had killed. I'm surprised they came in. You know, came in at that time of day to. Oh yeah. That's you know, and so there's there's a lot of deer that. That don't make book. I mean, we, we all see a number of those on Facebook too. Oh, there's sure. also some that never see Facebook. Yeah, and right. like you said, you know, social media and everything else that makes yeah. it makes everything seem like oh, you know, these states are so green, man. I, I, I personally, I, I hunt the eastern side of the state and the western side of the state. You know, I, I love the dynamic of whitetail and mule deer. It, yeah, it's, it's so much fun, right? Well, there's and, a ton of opportunity. And that's it. the other thing that um, you know when when we get in this business of comparing, you know, Nebraska to other states or Nebraska to Iowa, well, Iowa doesn't have mule deer, antelope, elk, bighorn, we're bighorn sheep, Yeah. you know, and, and that's all stuff we have. We've got space that, you know, that we're fortunate to have, you know, those, and, and, you know, Kansas has got, got some mule deer, not the numbers that we do. Um, they've got some antelope, but not, again, not near the numbers that we do. Yeah. Um, and very few elk, they've got elk in some isolated places. That's one of the really neat things about the state is we've got, you know, like you said, a lot of the best of the east and the best of the west. Yeah, it's you know, it's it's it, we're really fortunate to be as diverse as we are. Yeah, like I said, I, I before we started recording, I I was saying how much I enjoy just going walking the the bluffs and that. I mean, you you don't necessarily have to walk to to twelve thousand feet kind of a thing, but you still get that dynamic of of the bluffs and getting yep. up and and having a little bit of a hike, yeah. right? So well, then I. That smell of the ponderosa pines out west, and you know where they're yeah. on the ridge of Wildcat Hills. Like, that's something that I, that that just sticks with you. I it would does. wish you. <laughs> there's I I probably I no. There's not even a probably. I know I've got way more photos of nice sunsets and sunrises <laughs> than I've ever shot deer or seen deer out there. Yeah. But you know, it's 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 just a beautiful thing to have that 
experience from both ends of the state. Yep. So. Yep. Yeah, and it, it it kills me a little bit to have to live here in in Lincoln. <laughs> um, I mean, I've growing up in the central part of the state, and then you know spending a lot of my early working years out west. It's like I mean, my my heart is out there. You and um, me both. Yeah. I'm, I'm I live in Omaha. I grew up out by Grand Island, Hastings, and and hunted south central part of the state growing up too so I'm yeah I would love to be a little closer to that but you know yeah. kids and opportunities put you yeah yep, exactly sure. no. speaking of uh, of kids and things like that so um, youth seasons and that yeah. so we've got the youth permits in the state yep. right and you know we've got dedicated youth seasons for waterfowl and, and pheasants and things like that so in terms of thinking about that for a big game obviously like we said we got the the permits but why or, or you know how do how does Nebraska kind of view that in, in terms of the youth and the experience um you know I think some of it you know started with with our youth permits being those cheap eight dollar permits that are you know completely available we were one of the first states to to go that route with our with our deer permits and provide that opportunity since then you know a lot of the other states have joined in and are doing that and then have leapfrogged us by having set aside days you know for for youth and that's something that we discussed and I, I think there's there's definitely more interest in that growing you know now that we're seeing that, that other states you know almost everybody has got some sort of youth season mm-hmm. so that's something that we'll definitely consider you know going forward at exactly what that looks like or when it might be is you know that's that's the hard thing with it is you know when do we when do we fit that in yeah that's something that we'll have to figure out and we'll have conversations about, you know, like at our, our winter big game meetings that we have, you know, every year we'll, we'll throw that one out as a topic of discussion to see what, see what people think and things like that. But, it, you know, for the longest time, just providing that, oper- you know, that guaranteed opportunity, you know, with those inexpensive permits is, has been a, a big selling point for us and it's, you know, everybody else has got that too and, you know, and, and we're yeah. recognizing that, you know, are starting to realize that with the the short nine day season, that's that's a lot to try to squeeze in deer hunt plus kids and and all yeah. that through that time frame. So, yeah, it's it's definitely you know I I've got two girls and eventually I'll I'll get them out. They've done waterfowl hunts with me, but not not much big game. So, you know, to your point, trying to get a youth out in a nine day season. Yep. Yeah, I'm, I'm not taking them walking the wildcats with them or with the yeah. <laughs> northwest part of the state, but. You know, if I could get them on something close to home, that's yeah. definitely where we're going to go. It's always a topic. It seems to pop up. But I'll tell you what, there's a lot of posts on Facebook of guys taking their kids out or moms taking yeah. kids out, whatever. So I think, you know, those $8 permits probably make a big difference yeah. in, in wanting to get kids out. And yeah, they definitely get, get used quite a bit. I mean, we've historically, I, I haven't looked at the totals sold yet this year, but historically there's... Youth permits total is you know it's been ten to fifteen thousand of them wow. sold. So there's that's a good number. Yeah, there's a lot of them, a lot of them being used. So. Good, well, nothing wrong with that. We need to keep that yeah, yeah going definitely. and get that next generation out there. Yeah, so. Definitely. We talked about it a little earlier. We brought it up about the EHD and and that, and yep. obviously most folks have probably seen North Dakota seems to be having a, a big issue yep. now. They were withdrawing permits. So in terms of that, with CWD and EHD. How are you guys looking at that? How's the, how are we managing through that? We'd all love it to be controlled and or eradicated, yeah. but yeah, that's not going to happen, yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> right? You know, I, I unless you know, it's on, on the CWD front, um, you know, unless we figure something out that we can, you know, some sort of silver bullet, because that's that's such a complicated disease, and you know, that that's one that I think a lot of people have CWD fatigue. You know, we've been talking about it for 20 years, and, and everybody looks, and like, I don't see any impacts. You know, it's just nonsense, you know, and you see a lot of, you know, conspiracy theory-minded, mm-hmm. you know, thoughts out there. And, and I totally get that because, again, it's been here for a long time, and, yeah. you know, it's just it's a s- slowly creeping across the state. We're slowly detecting it, um, you know, in, in new counties every year. But there again, you know, it's just not having the major impacts you can go out of you know, just see dead carcasses, you know, and, and the easy comparisons to EHD, you know, you have a bad EHD year and everybody sees the dead deer and you're like, well, this is way worse. Well, EHD happens sporadically, you know, I mean, we had 2012, 
we have it every year. It's just at a low level. We, you know, we get reports of EHD yeah. here and there. This year, you know, the northern half of the state, we saw a you know, pretty fair amount of it. We still didn't, I mean, we had a fraction of the reports that we did in 2012. Wow. You know, and we, we asked the public to call and let us know what they've they found. And, you know, overall, you know, it was somewhere around 400 animals that got called and reported. We know that's not all of them, but we had sure. 6,000 of them reported in 2012. 2012. Wow. You know, and so even if, you know, there's some, oh, that's right, we're just apathy about calling it in, you know, even if it would be twice that, we're still, you know, looking at, you know, 10 to 15% of the impact we had statewide, Yeah. you know, in 2012. Granted, in 2012, we had a lot more deer on the landscape to, to tip over. Sure. EHD tends to be catastrophic, catastrophic events, you know, deer build back up and then, you know, might happen again, you know, in 10 or 15 years. Or CWD, it's just a you know, it's a it's a hole in the bucket that keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, it's kind of like the you know boiling the frog type of thing, yeah. where it's you know, and that's something that we we've, we've seen out west. You know, early on we'd pick up those first few years. You know, our prevalence rate was one or two percent. You know, even as recent as you know mid two thousands, two thousand six, two thousand seven, those prevalence rates were you know in the low single digits. These last few years, and some of those, you know, Pine Ridge where we're sampling, you know, adult bucks, we're, we're looking at 30% positive. Wow. In some of those. So it's, you know, that then the other thing, you know, the other comment you get is like, it's been here for millions of years. Well, our prevalence rate is increasing. We can absolutely prove that. that yeah. It's, it hasn't, if, if it's been here for millions of years, it would have leveled out. You know, sure. a, just a background level disease that's always been here. Yeah. Those prevalence rates every, everywhere that it's been found, it's, it, when, when nothing is done, it, slowly increases just in keeps going up a little yep. bit yep and that's it it's just a it's all starts out as a pinprick in the bucket that just slowly gets bigger and bigger and bigger yeah um and, and there's some of those places you know where we're starting to you know wyoming has got some units where they're seeing just they're like their populations are decreasing like 11 percent per year wow or something you know along those lines where they're seeing a, a, an impact you know and, and unfortunately I, you know there's not a lot on the table that can be done about it. Yeah. Well, and like we said, we'd be nice if we could, but yeah. if if nothing else, you know, let's hope that it doesn't cross the whole species barrier yeah. for us as, yeah. as humans. You know, the pandemic's kind of given that us uh, that that little fear yeah. in the background, yeah. but hopefully, makes us all worry about all, everything now. Yeah. That, now we panic a little bit about things, so hopefully that's not the case. So, well, awesome. So, let's transition into the elk. Because, like you mentioned, in the 80s, deer were still fairly uncommon and, and elk were really uncommon even at that point. So, and now, you know, I'm, I'm one of those lucky first-time applicants that got a permit this year. So, I apologize to everybody for that one. So, let's talk a little bit about the history yeah. of, of elk in Nebraska and, and then kind of what, what we're doing in terms of management and things like yeah. that. Yeah, so elk, elk were completely wiped out of Nebraska when early 1900s. There were elks, you know, sporadically. They you get a report of one or two in the, out in the panhandle. And it really wasn't until the the late 60s and 70s when we started seeing some. That Wyoming had transplanted some over by Lusk, you know, just across the border in the Pine Ridge. Um, and so we started seeing a few more uh, up in the Pine Ridge and, you know, a little bit along the, the North Platte River Valley. And they grew to, we had... 50 to 70 or something along those lines, uh, most of which were, were east of Shadron, um, which led to our, our first couple of, of elk seasons up in the Pine Ridge, up in that area in 1986 and 87. And that's one of the, you know, the things back then, you know, we had 50 or 60 or something like that, and the landowners basically told us their tolerance was about 20 or 30. They're like, we we kind of want elk, but we don't. We don't want any more than thirty. And it's like okay, so we had seasons, shot a bunch of them. Again, my dad actually drew one of those cow permits in that first season. Killed one off a, I think he was off a Metcalf is where he killed a, oh, nice. killed a cow way back in the day. Actually, when I was six, I got to go along on a scouting trip in the summer <laughs> when he went up there and knocked on doors and all sorts of stuff. So, so yeah, that you know those first seasons we knocked them back, and then you know they discontinued. We we quit those seasons because I mean there's only like. 30 elk left and so but then by 1995 I think that herd had grown to about well the herd 
I should say herds, plural, you know, across the, the Pine Ridge had grown to about 120. And those landowners said, <laughs> we need to start shooting elk again. And so we did. We opened up, that would have been that, that Hat Creek and Bordeaux units that year and had, had seasons. Um, but, you know, really pretty low levels, number of permits, you know, so that's, you know, it, then in that, you know, with the landowner permits, and we started to, our, our landowners started realizing that the chance to hunt elk, you know, every few years, particularly bulls, was was worth the opportunity or worth the, the hassle of putting up with them. And, and it's kind of what we've seen everywhere is everybody's always kind of excited to see elk come over the hill. And then when it gets, you know, five and eight, it's always pretty cool. When it gets to 20, they're like, it's interesting, and then when it gets to forty and fifty, like, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> we got to do something here, you know. And so, we've kind of seen that pattern just develop over time, and you know, again, with same depredation issues, just a different animal going. But you know, as those herds have grown, you know, and and really a, a lot of that landowner support had been built off those those landowner permits out there to the point of you know our. Trying to think, remember that you know the numbers. We we figure right now that there's probably you know 2,500 to 3,000 elk in the state. So it, it could be, you know, yeah. another 500 more than that. You know, just sure. getting a getting a realistic grasp on that is is a little bit difficult. But in our conversations with with landowners and staff and everybody, we think that's that's fairly accurate. And there should be there's actually less than that now. That would have been our estimate like a year ago. We've we're up to 350 elk we've shot during this season. Oh wow! Already, with a bunch of cow permits that just opened up here a couple weeks ago, so there'll be significantly fewer by by February. Yeah, uh, if everything goes well. But just that landowner support, you know, went from being you know targeting 30, you know, <laughs> up there. And granted, that was one area, but it's just it's expanded, and that's you know largely been because landowners have tolerated them. You know, then you then you get to points where they say enough is enough, and then they got to step in, step in, and knock them back. And the, the real, the the complicated part has been just the where elk and corn overlap. That's what has created a lot of the issues that we've yeah. seen over the last couple of years. You know, the the corn varieties have gotten you know so much more drought tolerant, and that where they're planting corn is farther and farther west. Yeah. You know the. I mean, the fact that dryland corn in eastern Nebraska produces, you know, 230 bushels an acre yeah. is <laughs> mind-blowing anymore. So the, just the, the corn varieties have kind of changed that landscape a little bit. You know, there's places that used to be nothing but wheat that are now cornfields, you know. And so it's it just complicates things, and it just makes us reevaluate where we can, you know, some of those impacts. And But that's the big thing is we just, where we've got that elk and corn overlap, we, we need to bring those elk numbers down. Yeah, just it's just that just doesn't work. The, the damage I, they can do in corn is insane. Oh, it's, it's a big animal, right? It's, <laughs> it's, so. it's a they're a little bit bigger than a deer. Um, yeah, so well, and they, they, they eat get a few in more that, pounds. When that when that corn gets big enough to hide an elk, they'll go in. They just don't leave. And I mean, they just the oh. trails and damage that they do is oh, I'm sure unbelievable. I I can so. only imagine. I mean, I I hunted South Central Nebraska, and, and the landowner that we used to hunt on some of his he. He would talk about just acres of corn laid out flat from the deer, right? Yeah. So I can only imagine what elk would do in that same scenario, just in the corn all year. So, yeah, I that's uh, yeah. <laughs> for those guys, I I feel for them. Yep. Yep. Boy, I, I sure enjoy the opportunity to be able to to have a tag in my yeah. pocket right now. <laughs> yeah. So along those lines of you know, obviously we've got got a good opportunity. Um, you know, it's it's every few years or whatever. Um, and, and managing the the deer and that um, with disease, how how is that affecting our elk in Nebraska? We've been sampling uh, CWD in our elk. I think it's been the last five years. I think we've been doing it since either twenty sixteen or twenty seventeen. First couple of years we picked up one or two each year, you know, the hundred or hundred and twenty mm-hmm. samples that we were getting. Then we went a couple of years. Um, we I don't think we had one last year, and maybe not even in twenty nineteen. We didn't have any positives, if I remember right. We might have had one last year, but then this year we've had a total of three. The prevalence dynamics are just different in elk, and that's kind of what they've seen across the West. It's generally not been as bad in in elk in in most places. I know there's a few places, like Wind Cave National Park, Mm -hmm. you know, had a 
fairly high incidence rate yeah. there several years ago. I haven't followed it to see how that situation has changed, but you know, for the most part, it's been definitely at a, at a lot lower rate here in Nebraska than Let's than we've had in in our mule deer and our whitetails. Yeah, but, well, that's good because I mean, as far as that goes, it's not going to go away. Yeah, but. If it impacts them a little bit less, then yeah, that's one less thing for you guys to have to worry yeah. about and manage too, right? Yep. So yeah, and then you know on the EHD, EHD side, typically that that really just impacts the whitetails the worst. Um, it, it can impact uh, bighorn sheep and, and pronghorn, but for the most part, elk and mule deer, really, it's it's not a huge mortality factor. It can have some impacts to them, but nothing like what you see with particularly whitetails. Whitetails yeah. can really get hit hard with it. Yeah. One of, one of the things we do see, and we've had a few, of course, in, you know, in our mule deer is that meningeal brainworm that we've seen. We've actually had documented a few cases of that in, in elk over the past few years. Oh, so. yeah. No, hopefully. Yeah, one oh, more. Yeah, <laughs> oh, one more thing, but hopefully it's not something that, that becomes too much of an issue yeah. over time, right? So. Yeah, and that's something we, you know, and that's, you know, between some of it is just the, the habitat conversion. You know, and meningeal brainworm has just kind of driven our, our the eastern boundary of where we've had mule deer just slowly pushing it farther west. As far as that goes, and back to on the mule deer, I, you know, I I have a season's choice tag that that has the the bonus whitetail, yeah. right? And the, is that part of that management then? Yeah, definitely. You know, to try and keep that border from totally just getting out of here all together yeah, yeah. And, and see meningeal brainworm is an interesting one because it's an eastern disease it's the whitetail are a host for it and it has a it's a nematode that has a life cycle that also goes through gastropods goes through snails and then gets ingested by mule deer and then goes through them and quite often it's fatal a lot what we see is you'll see a mule deer just standing out in the middle of the field in the winter just kind of walking circles because oh. nematode's going through their brain and kind of move you know leaves tracks yeah. and impacts them um but it's, it's such a bizarre disease and so that's some of the things you know like in the plat and frenchman we tend to throw a lot of you know antlers whitetail bonus tags on permits just so we're you know especially like you know the the well that plat nbca and the frenchman nbca permits because mm-hmm. most of those guys are hunting mule deer well if we want them to have an antlers whitetail permit because if they see a whitetail well, they're hunting mule deer we we're hoping they shoot that doe. Yeah. You know, and so, yeah, there's definitely a lot of things that we look at trying to balance all those, you know, ma- managing multiple species. And because it wasn't until, I don't know, it was the late 90s when we finally made, like, whitetail and mule deer or mule deer specific tags. It used to be just an any deer, mm-hmm. you know, across the state. So we were managing two species with One you know, a single permit, you yeah. know, and we weren't asking our hunters to, to make that determination. But then we realized that we, for one, we realized our hunters could tell the difference between the two. And then we also realized that we, we needed to make some management changes because we, with especially with the way the whitetail populations were increasing, we, we couldn't just keep throwing more and more permits on it, especially in places where we had mule deer. Because, I mean, you know, mule deer, you, you spook them off and they, they turn around and look at you. <laughs> they, they don't go very far before no, they turn. They, they, <laughs> They they weren't given the the skills to evade bullets. They're good. They're really good at evading coyotes and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, and that rough stuff where they they bounce and they turn around and look to see what the threat is. But yeah, yeah. It, uh, White tail they they're they gone. Just, they just run and they're, go. They're gone. You're not going to see them again. Yeah. The mule deer is going to look back. <laughs> yep. Well, and that's you know, a lot of people are like, oh, mule deer are just dumb. They just stand there and look at you. And it's actually that their intelligence. They're like, I, I want to see what that threat is because it doesn't it doesn't do me any good to just run off and run crazy somewhere because. Where am I going to end up? And they just, you know, they're used to that topography where they can just bound in four leaps, you know, be away from a coyote and not have to worry about it. And yeah. so it doesn't make, make sense for them to just yeah. run off and disappear, you know, into thick stuff like what a whitetail does. Yep. So, yeah. But it's not much of a match for 270. No, it, it really isn't. <laughs> so. Hopefully the 270 connects yeah. this weekend. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> Um, so you, you talked a bit about like at one point, and I, I remember the days when it was you know there's no distinguishing between the the whitetail and the mule deer. As far as that goes, has that that affected hunter recruitment or anything like that in the state? And and I, how did like let I'm just getting into that like how are how are we focusing on that a little bit? Yeah, um, 
I, I don't think, you know, asking more, you know, over hunters is necessarily negatively impacted recruitment in, in, in that regard. We're constantly looking at ways to, to in, engage both younger hunters, but, you know, I think more importantly, you know, a, a lot of the youth that we recruit with youth permits, most of them have parents that have a permit that are taking them. Mm-hmm. There, there's a fair number of single parents or single moms that haven't hunted their kid shows interest and has taken them, which is incredible that they're diving into it, you know, and, and navigating. And that's part of the reason we want to make, you know, those youth permits as, as simple as we can because, you know, we don't want to make that a, a huge barrier to, to entry. But, the you know, some of the bigger areas and, and you know, these would be more conversations for some of our, our three staff that are, sure. yeah. you know, engaged more in that. But, you know, just those, the non-traditional or, you know, it, so we're for the, the adult onset hunters where, you know, they get out of college, they have means, you know, to pay for, you know, because any more hunting's expensive, guns and all that stuff. It's the days of a kid buying the $120 rifle and deciding to deer hunt are, are kind of <laughs> over, unfortunately, you know, and or picking up, pulling grandpa's old gun off the shelf and, yeah. you know, a handful of shells. It's, it's different than it was, you know, 20 and 30 years ago sure. when we got started, but you know, so the, it, it's those people, the, you know, college graduates or, you know, people in college, you know, where a lot of our, and I know a lot of people are focusing the R3 efforts on that crowd because they're realizing that th- those are the people that you can, you know, that weren't going to be hunters, you know, that didn't grow up in a hunting household necessarily, but where the effort is, is better spent than, yeah. than trying to recruit those kids that are probably 50-50 going to be re- recruited anyway or, or more than 50-50. So that makes sense. You, like you said, they, they now have the means to yeah. to kind of pay for it versus you know the, the kid who needs mom or dad to, to yeah. take him to the field and, and well, there's, yeah, else. there's some yeah. of that. What you know, what happens when he gets to you know 16, 17, 18, yeah. and nobody's there to take him out, or, or right. when he turns 21 and yeah. no longer at home. Awesome, we've been rolling for about 50 minutes here, so. I'm sure that, you know, with this week, you've got plenty to do. Uh, you know, I'm sure there's a few emails and phone calls waiting no for problem. you. I'm surprised my phone hasn't rang once since we've been here usually. Yeah. That, that's kind of amazing, right? Yeah. That's yeah. a rarity, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> especially this time of year. It hasn't rang, rang yet while we've been sitting here. Yeah. So. Any final thoughts? Uh, anything that you want, want us to know about? And No, I, you know, I think the, the biggest thing is for, for everybody is just staying engaged. You know, with I mean, we're always looking for input. You know, those winter big game meetings that we put on, um, we typically do. In the past, we've always done eight in-person ones. We've got four administrative districts, so we try to do two in each of our our districts. They get spread across the state. We're kind of in the we're well, we're actually in the the process here in the next couple of weeks of planning when those are going to be. Most of them will be in December and um, early January, so we can get input. Of course, last year with COVID, we didn't have any of the in-person, so we did we actually did eight Zoom meetings. <laughs> um, which actually really worked good. We had like 400 and some people attend those wow. over eight different days. We had one in the afternoon and one in the evening on nice. like four days. It was, it was, those were some long, long days, but it was, oh, it was sure. a lot of fun to, to, to talk with people. And, and I try to make as many of those, those meetings as I can. I don't, I don't, I can't make them all, but those are always really good. So I guess what I, what I encourage people to do is just stay engaged because the, the more engagement that we have, the better better we can be or the better I can do my job at listening and figuring out what it is people a want but also what they're they're seeing in the field you know our, our staff does a, a a really good job of being you know eyes and ears you know out in their areas but the more people we can have providing you know input the better off we are and and those those meetings they sometimes people get the idea that we're not listening because we don't do a you know exactly what they say but if we listen to everybody, we'd have the you know the firearm season in November, but also December, but not in November, and you know we'd be earn a buck, but not earn a buck, and you know it's just we've got to take the best information we can get and try to make the best judgment. And sometimes we, you know, we, we have gotten there's been a lot of changes that have actually come from those winter meetings where somebody's like, hey, why don't you do this? It's like we didn't even know that was going on. That's a good idea. I'm not sure why we hadn't thought of that. So, but we we can't get that input if people don't come. I know. Look for that. Yeah, I, I, as you know, I was on one of the elk management yep. plan ones that you guys put on, and, and those are great. And I always see, uh, and I personally try to fill out all those surveys that come across email. So yeah. you guys are going to have those 
coming out again. Then, yeah, yeah, we'll have know. another another deer hunter survey coming out this this winter. Hopefully, I'm a little more timely on it this year. There, I'm, there was I'm trying to remember it. That ended up getting pushed into I think April this past year. I think was yeah, when that one came so out. It, it was, was a little later. later. Well, we did an antelope one early on in like uh, I think that was January when we ran that ran that antelope hunter survey that we did last year and, and there's just a lot of stuff where the that deer hunter one got pushed back i actually still haven't got that published on the final <laughs> results published yet and we're going to be done with this this season but i got it. that one actually there's i could go down a rabbit hole but like, <laughs> i don't know if you remember this last one i had the pictures of uh, the deer yeah um, you know sh- shoot or no shoot and yes it's, it's pretty interesting that was uh, pretty neat to look at the results there oh all that so, but the, and the fun thing on that was I, those were all pictures that came off of one of the WMAs that I managed. So oh, really? those were all public land deer. <laughs> so surprisingly, nice. there's nothing huge, but there's a couple decent bucks. On yeah. There. But, but yeah, they, our hunters definitely select for, I mean, everybody wants to shoot a bigger buck and we're kind of the point of everybody. There's not many people that just see a buck and pull the trigger Yeah. anymore. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm fairly selective, and when it gets to this weekend, I will I will be filling tags with those because I enjoy some meat in my freezer. Yeah. So. <laughs> yep, but even if it's a yearling buck, hey, if you're happy with it. It, it eats it. the same, right? Yep. yep, for sure. <laughs> as long as you're happy at the end of the day. All right, well, I appreciate the time, and you know, well, we'll, we'll, we'll get this out, and hopefully we get a few people maybe maybe reach out to you with some questions yeah. and things like that. Yeah, sure can. So, I'm always there. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Evan. Well, we want to thank Luke for joining us on the podcast this week. Everything that he shared with us was wonderful information, and hopefully you guys learned a little bit about big game in Nebraska and how the management of that is going for the state. I know I sure did. And if you guys see any of those surveys come across in your email or you see any of the winter planning meetings that Luke mentioned, Please join those and share your thoughts with them so that we can help out managing the game within our borders. As I mentioned before, if you're not yet a BHA member, head over to the website for Backcountry Hunters and Anglers and click on the join link there. If you're not a member of our Facebook group or follow us on Instagram, please go over and follow us on those two social media pages. And if you have questions, please feel free to reach out to our chapter email. Thank you for listening. Again, I'm Josh Kimenaugh, and we'll talk to you again next time on the podcast. And as I always say, be safe, be courteous, and shoot straight.